How would you characterize the trade-off that exists between continually promoting biodiversity and regeneration versus our also social need to drive greater yield and food security? So we have to solve one challenge, which is sufficient supply for your know, growing population. We have the eighth billion inhabitant on this planet. And at the same time, restoration of natural habitat yeah, and bringing the resource footprint of society back in line with what the planet can restore at any given time with, let's say, within a year. Hello and welcome to Tradeoffs, a podcast about the complex choices business leaders face to make their companies fit for a more sustainable future. I'm Ned Salter, Global Head of Investment Research at Fidelity International, and that was Werner Baumann, Chief Executive of the German multinational Bayer. It's a company at the forefront of a social and environmental conundrum, how to grow crops for 8 billion people while not degrading every last patch of land in the process. And you can hear the full interview on the Fidelity Answers podcast channel. But in this episode, we're going to be breaking down that conversation with some analysis from two of Fidelity's investment team, whose job it is to know the company inside out. Equity research analyst Pan Pan Zhao and global equities portfolio manager Dmitry Salamenkin. Welcome. Hi, Hi Ned. Ned. Pan Pan, Bayer's one of Germany's oldest companies. It started its life as a pharmaceuticals business and diversified after it purchased the giant agrochemicals business Monsanto in 2019 for $66 billion. Shortly after, it faced a string of lawsuits related to a weed killer that had been sold by Monsanto called Roundup, which contains the herbicide glyphosate. Can you give us a bit more context on where the company finds itself today? Yeah, sure. So Bayer is uh, one of the largest companies in Germany. It um, generates about 50 billion in revenue and has operations spanning over 80 countries in the world. As you know, after 2018, it purchased Monsanto and then um, that, that has shaped Bayer to its shape today. So currently the business is split roughly half and half between pharmaceutical and uh, crop science. Are there synergies between those two businesses? Uh, yeah, definitely. So um, both um, pharmaceutical and crop science are R&D driven. So it's more about designing genes. One is about designing genes for uh, human and one is about designing genes for um, crops. So there are definitely synergies from R&D from. Dry seeded rice. It has the same yield, maybe even a little bit higher, but you use substantially less water and substantially less methane emissions. Short-stature corn, on the other side, uh, is a corn variety that doesn't grow that high. Uh, you can plant denser. Uh, they are less susceptible yeah, to flipping over with strong winds. So you preserve uh, what you have planted in terms of yield that is going to come out of it. And it also has a substantially better nutrient uptake uh, and uses less water per, uh, let's say, uh, unit of yield uh, that, uh, that you're generating. Pan Pan, you mentioned that the shape of Bayer's business changed dramatically when it bought Monsanto in 2018. How was that experience for them? It's supposedly a good move for Bayer um, in the sense that Bayer used to be very strong in crop protection and then Monsanto um, was very good at seeds. And then so the combination should create really good powerhouse that is really strong in both crop protection and seeds. So it should 
generate a lot of synergies. But unfortunately, shortly after the acquisition, the glyphosate scandal caused the buyer huge amount of money. Um, so it's supposed to be a good acquisition, but then it didn't end very positively. So. The acquisition brought some legal liability associated with it, but nevertheless, on a fundamental basis, you remain positive about the combination. Yeah, yeah. Dimitri, this is a name I know you've been invested in for some time. What interests you about the company, and how's that journey been? It's a good question. So let's take a step back first. We basically I've started looking at the space global agri space uh, back in two thousand and seven as a reasonably young analyst. Always been interested by the space because of uh, interesting dem- demographic trends as well as uh, constrained supply on the arable land side. Uh, I used to be a shareholder in Monsanto between 2012 and the time when it got acquired by Bayer because Monsanto used to be pioneer in seed technologies. And then I was happy when it got taken out. Uh, I looked at the business combination. I thought exactly along what, with what Pan Pan said, you put together best-in-class seed technology with arguably best-in-class crop protection technology to drive further innovation. So I sold my Monsanto holding and decided to buy Bayer because of the combination. How has your experience been and how do you reflect on the legal liabilities associated with some of the issues that Pan Pan mentioned at the time of the acquisition or just following? So obviously it has not been uh, a great stock to hold since the acquisition has been uh, not the best performer, to put it mildly, in the fund. Uh, I think the technology angle is still pretty much intact. It's still two best-in-class assets that you put together. Very strong market position in North America and Latin America. The legal liabilities, liabilities I have clearly underestimated the impact, the lawsuit, the magnitude, the amount of money that they would be found liable for, yeah. Given the controversy we just discussed and the legal battles related to some of Bayer's pesticides, I asked Mr. Bauman why he didn't just close that part of the business. Our products uh, are driving better outcomes for farmers and society in uh, a uh, world where we have uh, um, a growing population that needs to be fed. Uh, And at the same time, uh, we have um, uh, a planet uh, that we need to bring back in balance with that we need to work on better and more innovative and with that more effective ways to farm which means that element of innovation drives higher yields in intensified agriculture in order to free up more space yeah for your yeah, renaturalizing uh, habitats and the like in order to have uh, more biodiversity uh, in order to have more natural habitats uh, in order to have more carbon sequestration opportunities mm-hmm. compared to a very extensive agriculture and that is exactly what we're doing with our products yeah being chemistry being biologicals uh, being uh, new seed varieties or digital means that help farmers take better informed decisions in order to scale down their let's say ecological footprint and with it become better in regenerative agriculture. Yeah, So it's an outcome-based perspective that we take. How would you characterize the trade-off, if there is one in your opinion, that exists between you know, continually promoting biodiversity and regeneration versus our also social need to, to drive um, you know, greater yield and food security? So we have to solve for one challenge, which is uh, food security, 
uh, and sufficient supply for your know, growing population. We have the eighth billion inhabitant on this planet. And at the same time, restoration of natural habitat, yeah, and bringing, as I said earlier, the resource footprint of society back in line with what the planet can restore at any given time with, let's say, within a year. Yeah. So the way to do that is to find better ways to produce food and feed and do that actually with less input. Pan Pan, Mr. Bauman referenced less inputs and an outcome-based perspective. What does he mean by that? Yeah, so I think what it means is that so we need to use less agrochemical products and less water, but then maximizing yield on the limited arable land because the fact is that uh, arable land doesn't have a lot of uh, space to grow in the future, but the population needs to grow by about 25% until 2050. And also the UN was projecting the amount of food for human and for also for animal field needs to grow by about 30% um, from now to 2050. So that really means we face a huge challenge of producing more with limited land, then that requires uh, companies like Bayer to focus more on innovation and then developing products or tools or technology that, that helps farmers to maximize or lift up yields um, and then use less uh, chemicals, less water on the limited land we have. So this argument for intensified farming is that it produces higher yields and so therefore it helps with food security, obviously feeding a growing population, as you mentioned, while using less space, leaving more land for natural habitats. But the chemistry itself, um, as he calls it, is sometimes pretty controversial and people have opinions about that. That's true. I guess everything has um, two sides. Bayer was developing some of the uh, products, for example, the GMO that greatly helps with improving yields. But then uh, in the meantime, it's uh, widely associated with the extinction of uh, some animal species. So that is uh, definitely one of the trade-offs the company are facing. Um, but then in the meantime, I guess we also uh, shouldn't ignore the environmental benefits this product and also innovation the company is bringing to the society. That's a really helpful characterization. You referenced GMO. So um, let's come back to that, genetically modified organisms. Dimitri, let's move quickly just to this innovation concept. How does Bayer achieve this? Many years, if not decades of experience, you bring together two very, very strong platforms, both having decades of experience in innovation, and you try to combine the assets and drive it, drive it further. And uh, just going back to Panpan's earlier point again, this... Uh, potential reduction in uh, other inputs. It's super important because if you think about the use of fertilizer, if you could reduce this significantly, by the way of innovation of better seed technology, better crop protection, uh, fertilizer manufacturing is not an environmentally friendly process at all because you use feedstock such as coal, such as natural gas, it's mining, it's shipping, very heavy carbon footprint. So if they achieve what they achieve, it's uh, it's 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 big positive for society. Um, Pan Pan, do you think Bayer is doing a good job on this front? 
Uh, I think their innovation, their product development is very much focused on reducing ecological footprint. Agriculture as a whole represents about 25% of the global carbon emission and then a three quarter of the global water usage. And then what Bayer is focusing on is agri uh, precision ag technology helps farmers to monitor their crops and, and also the need of those crop protection products and also water usage at the right time with the right amount of usage. And in this way, it really helps farmers reduce the ecological footprints from their, their, their operations. Dimitri, when it comes to yield versus biodiversity, Mr. Bauman is saying that there's no trade-off, that a trade-off doesn't exist, that both can be prioritized and he sees technology as the answer. Do you believe that? Is it fair? So you definitely need to drive yield if you want to feed the world. There's no other way around it because arable land is limited in supply. So that's kind of, that's it. That's where we are. Now, uh, if you drive yield further, then of course you reduce the amount of land that you need to use. So it helps with biodiversity. It helps address, at least to some extent, address the deforestation issue. I guess the question that we're asking specifically, or we were trying to unpack with Mr. Bauman, is... You know, there are some genetically modified crops that may themselves have a negative impact on biodiversity. I take your point on deforestation. But again, there is an element of a trade-off, which is, you know, a crop that uh, diminishes the natural species of insects, for example, might lower biodiversity. Uh, while, yes, of course, you are achieving higher yield and better food security. Is that something that worries you as a PM? Yeah, it absolutely does, of course. But then you look at the situation and uh, if there is a better technology that addresses it or helps improve this potential negative impact, then I'm sure they will be on it. Uh, in terms of the trade-offs, uh, yield is what's going to drive the business, obviously. Let's listen to another clip. It's about Bayer as an R&D powerhouse. I wanted to know if better technologies mean fewer pesticides. Does that cannibalize the company's main business, or is there a more subtle trade-off here? There is certainly uh, the ambition to reduce uh, uh, volume per acre that we are bringing out, while at the same time being as efficacious as today, or even more efficacious uh, in uh, your combating pests, for example. Now, the question is, does that automatically mean that we are going to see lower revenues? Uh, I'd say from where I sit, uh, not necessarily so. It's actually going to be the opposite. Uh, the way that we are looking at uh, you know, the market uh, and how it's going to evolve and what we are going to bring to the table is that uh, we are progressively moving away from a company that is an input provider towards a company uh, that uh, provides farmers with tailored solutions, yeah? which means uh, uh, we can help farmers uh, you know, pick the right seed variety in order to optimize uh, their yields uh, and, and the quality. Uh, we can uh, provide farmers with specific prescriptions on how to treat their fields yeah, in keeping them healthy during the growing season. Uh, we have uh, uh, unmatched agronomic advice capabilities also with uh, the by far furthest penetrated um, digital farming platform that we have. And we are stringing these all together also with biological solutions that we have uh, you know, as the biggest uh, provider of biological solutions in the industry. We string it all together for better outcome for the farmer. And the farmer is willing to pay for better outcomes uh, and he's going to be willing to pay a premium for that. 
Yeah, because he's going to be paid on that better outcome in terms of quality and yield. So what's just been characterized in those comments is really a move from a volume-based business to a value-added-based business. And and Pan Pan, through your lens of fundamental analysis, how realistic is this? Yeah, I think it is very realistic. And I do remain optimistic about buyers precision egg offering because this this technology really creates value for farmers. And farmers um, operate in a way of total cost of ownership. So they evaluate what's good for them, what's uh, create value for them. Um, and then the, in, in a sense, uh, how much money they can save and how much profit they can maximize out of those uh, new offerings. So the precision ag technology, um, uh, Mr. Warner was mentioning about, um, really helps farmers to monitor the use of seeds in the optimal part of the land. And also it helps farmers to identify where there is problem, there is a fungicide and then what needs to be treated at a specific time. And also it helps farmers to optimize the fertilizer supply chain and also optimize the use of water. So through these different uh, dimensions, it really helps farmers to uh, save a lot of money through their operations and also uh, reduce ecological footprint. Dimitri, other companies and other industries have endeavored to make this move from volume to value add. How does it change your perspective on buyer, if at all? And maybe how do you think about valuing the company differently, if at all? So maybe a couple of general points. If you step back from buyer, uh, you look through the history of good enterprises. A good company should not be afraid to disrupt itself because if it doesn't, that someone else will. It's it's uh, it's it's an obvious thing. We all heard this many times and saw it many times, but it's very important, and that's exactly what they are trying to do to some extent. That's number one. Number two, if they help grow the pie from the farmer's perspective, farmer economics perspective, then they can get a bigger slice. It doesn't have to be in terms of sales, but obviously incremental profitability can improve very significantly. The blue sky scenario, people might look at it as a highly innovative business and ascribe some unbelievably high valuations. But as a value fund manager, I don't necessarily count on that at the current point anyway. Pen Pen, what about this concept and what it means for buyer from a sustainability perspective? How does it cause you to reflect on buyer's ESG credentials? Um, I think buyer definitely has the right product and, and also the right strategy. It's doing the right thing and they are actively educating both investors and general public about their sustainability strategy. But I think this this change in perception takes time and sometimes it takes years to come. Dimitri, the one group we haven't talked about is obviously the farmers. Um, and I wanted to, to dig a little bit deeper on this because they're one of the biggest stakeholders in all of buyers' activities. And, and Mr. Bauman says they will be willing to pay more for these new technologies. And I guess my question is, will they? I mean, there's obviously significant cost and significant risk for the farmers to adopt new systems, new technologies. I think uh, it's true to some extent, to some degree, they will be willing to share if they get more as a result of buy innovation and buy products. Because farmer community, they are very sophisticated. They know exactly what they are doing. Some of them have been farming for generations and generations. So you can't just sell something that makes no sense, economic sense to the farmer community. So if they see the proof, they will be very happy to share the upside 
but it needs to be tangible and real. That would be my take. Okay, so the farmers are sophisticated. They focus on ROI, but not all of buyers' clients are large agribusinesses. What about the small farmers? Even smaller size farms, the farm communities would be pretty sophisticated in terms of what they get uh, cash on cash returns, so to speak. Okay, so where they see big opportunity that's largely proven out, these are investments that they're willing to take. Definitely, but they need to see the proof. They see the proof, they get the benefit, and then I'm sure buyer can get part of the upside. Our third clip is to do with risk, risk that touches on stakeholders, both the social aspect of ESG, the health risks to consumers, and the governance side, the health risks of the business, and of course, the duty to shareholders. I want to talk about risk and what level of risk is acceptable to buyer. You took over the agrochemical company Monsanto in 2018, and with that business came billions of dollars in liabilities associated with the marketing of the herbicide glyphosate under the brand name Roundup. Um, And obviously, that was a costly acquisition, both from the write-offs, the write-down, and the liabilities, so a multi-billion dollar mistake. So the question is, how much risk are you willing to take both financially and reputationally when it comes to the release of new products? So in terms of uh, uh, risk relative to the safety of product, none. Yeah, none. Uh, We are not in the business of exposing other people to risks that are unacceptable. Second, um, your business risks, more generically speaking, when it comes to, let's say, fairly big decisions in terms of resource allocation, uh, such as an acquisition. Um, uh, there's there's something that is very very important to us, and that is of course that we uh, you know, um, you know, uh, do everything that we do based on you know, an informed perspective, and that means with really solid and uh, uh, and, and sufficient diligence prior to taking a decision. Yeah, uh, still uh, a risk always remains. Yeah, and then it is about assessing that risk and the likelihood of occurrence. Third one. Uh, and you mentioned that as well, is reputational risk. We have inherited a substantial reputational exposure with the acquisition on Fomenzento. The way we looked at it at the time was that we thought that uh, we could manage that risk based on a very different, much more stakeholder-oriented and inclusive approach that Legacy Bayer stood for. And that also worked very well in the beginning up and until uh, that avalanche of uh, your glyphosate litigation hit us. Yeah? So that is a lesson learned uh, from the past because uh, reputation is absolutely key to credibility uh, you know, across all constituencies that we are dealing with, including in front of the courts. Life is always life-threatening. Yeah? Yeah. And uh, you're typically, you're in business, uh, we do that every day. We take decisions uh, under risk and without, let's say, uh, 100% of knowledge. Yeah, At some point in time, uh, that level of uh, information that we have has to be good enough and solid enough to take a decision. But in most cases, yeah, a residual risk remains. Yeah, And where there's no risk, yeah, you can also safely assume that there's very limited opportunity. Pan, the residual risk that Mr. Bauman highlights there. I mean, that's going to be the case for any product that buyer takes to market, or I guess any company for that matter. Um, Buyers learned this the hard way, I suppose. So is there a trade-off 
when it comes to them putting out new products? Uh, yeah, I think there are definitely trade-offs, but um, I think when it comes to uh, the business of buyer that is associated with human health, the company should really do the best to uh, eliminate those risks. Uh, but then in reality, there is, there is never perfect foresight. Uh, but then I think the company, what, what the company and also government can do is perhaps they can do a better job at testing, at quality control to prevent this risk at the first place. And then in addition to that, they can do a better job at educating people of the best or the most appropriate use of their product. Dimitri, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, broadly speaking, I do. I do agree. Uh, think about other industries as good examples. Uh, any innovation can potentially lead to risk because we are dealing in the unknown with something new. Pharmaceuticals, a uh, very good example. Things are happening quite regularly in the space. It's, I guess, a cost of doing business, so to speak. In case of buy and glyphosate, obviously they have received a lot of scrutiny from a number of regulatory agencies over the years on this product specifically. How closely do you think companies should be working with regulators when it lead when it's leading up to a product launch? I think they should be very close in terms of submitting all the data that is relevant, up highlighting potential risks uh, up front. But obviously the relationship should always be at arm's length. It's very important. Close to disclose all the data, but not, not close enough to influence. Can you think of any other examples recently where there was a known risk, a residual risk, as we talked about with Mr. Bauman, that needed to be risk accepted? Maybe not company specific, but if I'm thinking about broad ESG topics, for example, take uh, energy transition. When there was a view formed maybe three, four years ago that anything fossil fuel related was bad and anything renewable was good. Uh, Makes sense at the high level, but if you start digging deeper, then maybe there are lots more nuances. And there are certain risks with this transition that you need to accept as you move from one to the other, so to speak. So I don't know if it answers the question directly, but maybe it's, it's a good analogy. So staying with you, Dimitri, I did press Mr. Bauman later in the interview about the KPIs that Bayer uses when it comes to assessing business risk, and he had a long and comprehensive list. What did they miss with Monsanto? Uh... Maybe I'm not the right person to answer this because I made exactly the same mistake. Sort of follow the science, so to speak, does not always work, as we saw. Pan Pan, as we've heard, Bayer is keenly aware of what the public thinks. It's had a big impact on GMO. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just as a background, so GMO is genetically modified seeds. Basically, you modify the seeds slightly so it adds uh, certain traits to the seeds, and then it helps uh, prevent certain insect or fungi, and then it helps improve the yield. Um, then it is completely banned in most of the European countries, but uh, it is widely used in both US and uh, South America for a long time. So basically, right now, the world remains pretty divided in terms of views for uh, GMO. Why is that? Uh, I think this is due to um, public perception. So uh, in Europe, 
because of some environmentalist uh, groups constantly protesting about the negatives of GMO, that has really uh, exacerbated the damage of GMO. So that's why, although the product is proven safe in other parts of the world, uh, it remains this sort of controversial view in the European Union. And then that's why the regulators also uh, doesn't really believe in the product and then it's remained banned in, in Europe. Let's hear what Mr. Bauman has to say on this. Given that you are in businesses where you're, you're driving forward um, and endeavoring to, to make some challenging decisions to drive society forward, to what extent does the court of public opinion weigh on on your decision making you'll always you know you're in businesses that kind of make people a little bit unhappy and does that on on a way on your decision making uh, that's a very very good question that um, without the endorsement uh, of society um, we don't have a license to operate full stop yeah so we cannot simply sit here and say um, we know what's right for you, customers, society, uh, and uh, get out of our way. Yeah? What we have to do is we have to be in constant dialogue, reaching out, uh, being transparent about what it is that uh, we think should be done, uh, how we are approaching things, bringing people in uh, in order to uh, you know, help them understand what it is that we want to do, and ideally also gain acceptance for it. It's not said that that always works. Yeah, we've seen that with uh, GMO, where there's no acceptance in most uh, European markets, and uh, that is okay for us. We would love it to be different. We have a different perspective, but we do accept it. And that also means that with that acceptance, uh, it is clear that that is very, very important for us, for our license to operate in other areas in these markets, where you know, there's more openness to other things that we are doing. Yeah? So markets happen to be different, as I mentioned already, yeah, with some of the technologies which are being uh, very much accepted uh, and very, very important in the Americas versus uh, less of that acceptance uh, in continental Europe. Dimitri, is this bending to the court of public opinion a trend that you're seeing more broadly? And if so, you know, what are the most impacted sectors? Public opinion has always been very important. It's not a recent trend. It's been with us probably for centuries in all aspects of life. So, you know, you can get to extremes pretty quickly. And I guess the best response for any company, listen, first of all, uh, act constructively, remain open-minded and educate when they need to, even if they disagree. Try and tell your own narrative in a calm and respectful way. Operate with the facts and be very, very patient. Pan Pan, are you things that buyers should be doing to help that process of education? Yeah, definitely. So I think buyer can definitely do a better job at uh, educating targeted groups. So i.e. both investor community and also their customers and community. Actually, uh, it's very encouraging for me to see Bayer is actively making these efforts. So there are some um, historically uh, maintained perceptions on GMO seeds around the world. Um, education will be part of that. Proving out the science will be part of that. 
What's your forecast about the future adoption of GMO seeds? So I think recently uh, the European Commission has been more relaxed on uh, GM seeds, but it's probably not going to lift the ban that's been imposed for the last decade. But then when it comes to a future generation of seeds, uh, I know European uh, Commission is more relaxed when it comes to gene editing, so slightly editing the traits um, of some of the seeds. So I think that is an uh, encouraging move. So there you have it, a company at the forefront of food security that's trying to balance feeding the world while not damaging it beyond repair. You can hear my full interview with Byers' Werner Baumann on the Fidelity Answers channel. Check for a link in the show notes. And you can read and watch more on this and interviews with other CEOs facing their own trade-offs at your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. But for now, I want to thank my guests, Pan Pan Zhao and Dimitri Salamankin. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with additional research from Sam Thomas. Technical production was Adam Sheldrake and Callum Blitz. The editor is Richard Edgar. From all of us here at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.